I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and while I recover from flu, I thought I'd put up an interview from the archive. In 2008, I went to Cambridge to talk to Marina Frolova-Walker about Russian music and nationalism. She'd just published a book on the subject, so I had the chance to ask her about the formation and character of a national style in Russian music in the 19th century, the key role played by the group of composers known as the Five or the Mighty Handful, Balakirev, Kui, Mussorgsky, Rimsky-Korsakov and Borodin, and later the expectations placed on composers under Stalin. When I met Marina, I began by asking her about the concert season of Russian music that Diaghilev mounted in Paris in 1907. This was a season that, for European concertgoers, really put Russian music on the map. This is a very important point in the history of Russian music for the West, because I don't think it quite existed as a concept in Europe before Diaghilev. And uh, Diaghilev put on this uh, very ambitious program and brought a lot of composers from Russia. Rachmaninoff came in person, Skrebin came in person, Rimsky-Korsakov, of course, was conducting his own music. And that made such an impression on the Parisians that it kind of ingrained some kinds of ideas in their minds about what Russian music was about. And it so happened that most of his program was devoted to the composers of The Mighty Handful. There was only one little bit of Tchaikovsky there, and even that was a a piece that was influenced by The Mighty Handful. So that set the ball rolling, because um, most of these pieces were with some Orientalism in them, you know, they were Oriental, and they gave the French, the Parisians, this idea that uh, Russia and the Orient were one and the same. And you've got interesting things to say about the difference between the characteristics of Russian music as perceived in the West and the characteristics characteristics of Russian literature, because they're very different. Rich literature, we have the stereotype of, of gloomy and mystical and not much happening and oppressive weight of history and character and so on. And the Western view of Russian music is, is very different from that, isn't it? Yes, I wanted to attract people's attention to that because there is this uh, mystical Russian character or Russian soul that everyone's uh, talking about and still talking about both in Russia and in the West. And I just wanted to uh, show to people that it 
it depends uh, on what side you look from, you know, what side you look from at that this character. Because if you look from the literary side, you do indeed get heroes that are uh, very sort of unhappy. They they might have tragic fates. They somehow don't can't find their calling, can't find anything to do. And uh, in Russian music of the same period, you have a very different portrayal of Russia, which has very strong rhythms, very festive images about it. They have a lot of, uh, of a collective um, element in them, a lot of dances. It's it's very bright, very colorful, very very different from the melancholy Russian soul. So your motivation for exploring this topic was in part to explain Russian music to the West, but also to see how Russian music had explained itself. To, to Russians. Yes, I must say it was a very personal project for me because I started thinking about this book after I emigrated to Britain, uh, after I came from Russia. And of course, I was able to distance myself from my own uh, upbringing, from my own education and look uh, back at what my professors at the conservatory told me and try to look at it critically. But also still being an outsider in here in Britain, I, I noticed how people mm, were, in what way they were talking about Russian music. And it seemed to be they always were fascinated by its mystique. Uh, and that I found myself in this very strange role to sometimes talk about, sort of uh, speak against the Russianness of Russian music, although fully realizing that this is why it's being played in the concert halls and this is why it's being enjoyed sometimes. And the Russianness of Russian music is a very big deal in Russia, and that's that's clear from the whole of your book. And one thing which surprised me was that the first performance of an opera by Glinka, A Life for the Tsar, in 1836, is sort of regarded as the foundational act of Russian music, and, really, and he is the father of Russian music, and yet he's, he's little known in the West, I think, but his role in Russia was, was enormous. Yes, and that was also one of the primary stimuli for my, for my writing this book because I once talked to a professor in Russia whom I respected very much and said to him, I would like to write, write about Glinka for the Western audience. And he said to me, oh, no, they will never understand. So that was another thing, you know, why would they never understand? What is it about Glenka that doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to be, the greatness of Glenka doesn't somehow, isn't somehow obvious to the West. And it's the same with Pushkin. And this mm. is how Pushkin comes into my book as well. So there's this cult of Glenka and cult of Pushkin in, in Russia. And I was trying to ask myself a question, why Glinka isn't known, you know, and how things would, would be if it happened in a different way, if, if um, I don't know, circumstances of his life, or circumstances of performance of his works in the West were, was different. And lots of things cluster around Glinka, lots of attributes which are later taken to be quintessentially Russian. Can you say something about what, what those attributes were in Glinka's music? Yes, I think uh, Glinka simply invented a lot of things which uh, the next generation of composers, the mighty handful, just uh, picked out one by one and developed them in whole strains of Russian music. You know, one of such strains, for example, is 
Using uh, strange meters like 5-4, Glinka invented the use of 5-4 to represent aspects of folk poetry, not actually folk music, but folk poetry. And after that, you know, everyone was, was using this, you know, 5-4, then 7-4, like in Borodin, and 11-4 in Rimsky-Korsakov, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, and it goes on to Stravinsky. Uh, there was another thing that Glinka invented, which was the whole tone scale, and he called it the chemical scale, the artificial scale, to represent the fantastic. Again, going on from Glinka, Rimsky-Korsakov invented his own version of a chemical scale, another chemical scale, which was the octatonic scale, in turn semitone scale. And then the whole strain of Russian music, which deals with fantastic subjects, is based on that, on harmonies that um, are built out of this scale. So if Glinka sets the, the ball rolling, it's the mighty handful, this group of composers in the mid-century in Russia, who really take it up and, and run with it and develop a lot of the things that we think of as the, the Russian style. And this group included composers like Rimsky-Korsakov and Balakirev and, and Borodin, who are familiar names in the West. What were they trying to do ideologically? Because there was obviously a lot of conscious thought about what they were doing and what was an appropriate practice for a Russian composer. So what was was the sort of ideological background to their project? Yeah, the ideological background was, I guess, the Slavophile thought, you know, and the Russian nationalism as it was born at around that time. So they were trying to write music that was not German, not Mm. Germanic. And uh, the, the Germ- German music was really the, the big other for them. And they were trying to avoid various things that Germans did and do things in a very different way. Uh, not for every single one of these composers was uh, equally important. You know, For Mussorgsky, for example, it was very important to write without transitions, mm. yeah, to state you know, theme and then another theme. This is how we do it in Russia. This is what, what he said. Uh, without all kinds of reflections and transitions, you know, going from one to another, like the Germans did. So it was very important for the ideologue of the group, uh, Vladimir Stasov, uh, this kind of nationalist idea. It was to some extent important to Balakirev. But even then, you know, their nationalism was very, I guess, sort of intuitive. And they were very happy to use various features of Western music uh, if they came from composers that they liked. And Balakirev liked Schumann, Balakirev liked Liszt, Balakirev liked Berlioz. But Balakirev didn't like Mendelssohn. So basically, in Russian music, you know, the first uh, impetus was you know, not to be like Mendelssohn, to avoid being Mendelssohnian. And you already mentioned Orientalism in the context of Diaghilev's season. But of course, our perception of Orientalism is completely bound up with Russian music. But presumably from a Russian perspective, Orientalism is at, is at one remove from, from what they think of as, as quintessentially Russian. Can you say a bit about how they incorporated or how they viewed uh, the Orient? Yes, it was a very strange thing because it, I think it happened by accident that Balakirev at one point went to the Caucasus and uh, recorded or sort of just heard various idioms of Armenian, Georgian music. It didn't matter to him exactly where that came from. It all was merged together in this idea of Oriental music. And then he came back home and showed these rhythms and these, these tunes to his friends and they started exploring them together together. 
especially in Balakarev himself. And it just seemed so much easier to write music that was not Germanic mm. if it was in an Oriental style. It was easier because it was more exotic. It was seemed to be further removed than Russian folk song. So this is where they started from. So eventually it's very hard to say whether this Orient is the distant exotic other for the Russians or whether it is in fact themselves. They were a little bit confused about that themselves. You write about one composer, I can't remember, can't remember if it was Balakirev, who mm-hmm. was writing a piece of Slavic music about Czechoslovakia or yeah. something, and he was also using his Oriental strain, and it was it was as if it had just been incorporated into his own uh, composing idiom and wasn't really thought of mm-hmm. as other at all. Yes, I think I think he stopped noticing it after a while, and this this overture in Bohemia where he uses a Moravian tune, and it sounds to us today as completely Oriental. But he was very surprised when he was confronted by one listener saying that you know why is it why should it be in an Oriental style? And ideologically, it shouldn't be because the Slavs were, of course, the Slav brothers, and that Pan-Slavism also played quite a major role in the ideology of the mighty handful. Now, Rimsky Kroskov was the most productive of the group, and yet he was the one who really turned his back on it in the latter part of his career, to the extent that he even satirized some of the, the techniques that they, they had used. Did he feel it was simply played out, and, and if so, why? Yes, I would say that actually all of these composers who lived long enough had some kind of change of heart. Uh, Mussorgsky, in a sense, also turned to more lyrical subjects, more personal subject matter. And Rimsky-Korsakov, of course, lived for a very long time and was active for a very long time. And um, what happened that he was so prolific, he was using these idioms so many times in every single one of his 15 operas, well, maybe not in every single one, but in most of his 15 operas. He also, by the end of his life, had already... Uh, two generations of uh, students who were doing exactly the same things or very similar things. So he felt himself that that style has become academicized. He became tired of it. And um, he wanted to go back to melody and, and back to sort of writing from the heart, writing lyrical mer- melodies from the heart. And actually Tchaikovsky, uh, this, is, this was his main problem with The Mighty Handful because he felt that their style was artificial, that they were constructing it. And I was trying to show in the book as well how they were constructing it. And Rimsky-Korsakov at one point, when he was about 55 years of age, decided, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to write like Verdi does, you know, or Mozart. And he tried all kinds of other styles. And Wagner, of course, was a very important thing thing for him at that point. And obviously some constraints can enable creativity, you know, to, to say, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do that. Do you think... In general, the constraints the mighty handful imposed upon themselves were creatively enabling or were they creatively ultimately restrictive? I think they were creatively enabling in the 60s and early 70s, enormously so. I think the you know the constraints that Mussorgsky, for example, put on himself also opened up this enormous field of freedom you know that he found. The fact that he wanted to write a Russian opera based on the intonation of Russian speech basically started the whole new strain in operatic composition, which was later followed by many composers in the 20th century, including Debussy, for example. So it was it was very so extremely fruitful soil to work on 
but eventually you know they they felt that could they that style probably could not develop and they began to stagnate and of course when it was revived forcefully by by stalin's policies in the 20th century it proved to be a completely dead uh, thing you know and and still composers were writing them and that this is what i find so strange that it wasn't only revived in russia but it was also revived with just a change of national folk material in all the other 14 republics of the Soviet Union. There's some absurd moments in your book where you talk about programs and targets for building opera houses and for writing operas and composers were sent out from the center to these republics in order to to teach or to write operas with a nationalist spirit and sometimes they could make quite you know they could become sort of local heroes for um celebrating Kyrgyz nation- nationalism mm-hmm. or, or something. Yes, I I love these absurd moments. I think they're they're absolutely wonderful. But the interesting thing is that these operas do exist. They do get performed still in in many of these now independent states. And for some of them, not for all of them, they, they have become an important part of their cultural heritage. And once you put opera somewhere, it's quite hard to then uproot it, although some uh, of these independent states have done it or are trying to do this as a Western uh, sort of invasion, cultural invasion. But in, in many other places, opera has found new listeners, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of listeners, and you can't quite take it away. And this, has hap- this happened because of Stalin's policies, no matter how absurd they were, but this is what happened, and this is now part of history. And you can't take it away, you can't get rid of it anymore. Although I suppose you can close the opera houses down, which has happened in some republics, hasn't it? Yes, it has happened in, in some republics, but not in others. And in others, they might not perform exactly the same repertoire, but they would perform Mozart and they would perform you know, the great European operas, which probably would not have been possible so easily, you know, were it not for that period of Stalinist cultural nationalism. Can you say something about the wider question which came after the revolution about what kind of music was appropriate for the new socialist um, republic? Yes, there was a, uh, that was a very big question. All throughout the 1920s, people were trying to find out, find the right style appropriate for the new Soviet topics. And they eventually started to realize that if they didn't write on Soviet topics, they will not be published and they will lose their livelihood. So they had to write on them. But what to do was a big question. And, you know, while at the beginning of the 1930s, there was still a very broad range of options. You could do a modernist thing. You could do a Bartokian folk music thing. You can do all kinds of things. By, By about 1936, after the criticism of Shostakovich's opera Lady Macbeth of Nutsensk, the range of options narrowed. And um, there was a very clear guidance given from the top that the predominant style should be based on folk music because folk music is the root of everything. And that folk music should not be developed in the way Stravinsky developed it, or Bartok did, or Shimanovsky did. So it had to to be, they had to be going back to the mighty handful because there simply weren't any options left. Can you say what formalism is? Because that, you mentioned the charge made against Shostakovich, and he was accused of formalism. And can you say what that meant in Stalin's Russia to be accused of that? 
basically, formalism is, was a, a, a very all-embracing term. You know, any piece where you could notice the form, the style, even, you know, if you could notice that this piece tried to question what music was, what art was, anything that brought your attention to the form could be deemed formalist. And uh, indeed, uh, pieces that were not formalist and were supposed to be socialist realist, they're supposed to be sort of take you straight to the content. You should not be thinking of what themes the composer uses, you know, should, what, what, what the harmonies are, what the counterpoint is. But you should be thinking of what, the, what it is that the composer wants to say to us about the heroic labor of these uh, shock workers or something like that. You, you say there's a problem in the West in that we tend really only to know Prokofiev and Shostakovich from this period. What, what do you think, the, what, what kind of distortions does that create in our Western minds if, the, if those are the only composers we know from Stalin's Russia? Well, they, the, there is a major distortion because, of course, Prokofiev and Shostakovich were people who didn't fit into the mold and tried to avoid that socialist realist style as much as possible. Neither Prokofiev nor Shostakovich managed to avoid it altogether, but they tried and they didn't fit in, and this is why they had trouble. But the majority of Soviet composers, the the great numbers of them, that the, probably several thousands of them, were writing a very, very, very different music. But whether we should change that perception, I'm not sure, because it would be actually very hard to bring some of these works back to life. I suppose Kachaturian is, is the, other, the other figure that we sometimes hear in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kachaturian is actually quite representative of this mighty handful-based style mm. because, uh, you know, you might think that he is an Armenian composer, he's kind of authentic, but if you read how his colleagues rated him and even people in Armenia rated him at the time, they felt that he was basically a student of Rimsky-Korsakov or Rimsky-Korsakov students. He was writing in the same style and actually there's very little in him that has to do with authentic folk music. It was all just as stylized as the Orientalism of Rimsky-Korsakov was. And then after the death of Stalin, there was a gradual liberalization in what composers could write. And I think you say Stravinsky was, was maybe the central figure that people seized on to learn from and to incorporate into their music. Uh, yes, uh, after Stalin's death, suddenly everything came into the Soviet Union, all the music from the West at the same time, all the music that they couldn't hear all these years. And it was both you know, Schoenberg and Webern and also the post-war avant-garde at the same time, and Stravinsky, because Stravinsky was known in Russia, but only through his very early ballets and nothing later than that. So I think, you know, Composers who still wanted to explore folk music in the 60s, they were doing it mainly following in Stravinsky's footsteps. And finally, I wanted to ask you, in the post-Soviet world, does nationalism still exist in the Soviet, the former Soviet Union? And, and if so, what form has it taken or is it a, a dead letter? I will not uh, be able to talk about other uh, states, you know, that the, the situation is very different in all of them. And I'll just speak for, for the Russians because I have spoken to many composers uh, recently and to them the question of being Russian or not being Russian is still extremely important. 
It, we might not be able to actually hear it in their music because nationalism is now, it's not so obvious, may not be so obvious to us. But for a lot of composers in, in post-Soviet Russia, for example, the question is, should we follow Shostakovich or not? You know, it seems that Shostakovich is, is this you know, cult figure that many young composers can't get away from. And of course, another question for them is, what do we do in our relations to the West? Because so many of Russian composers, actually the most important Russian composers in the post-Soviet period moved away from their country because they're simply not able to exist on what um, they compose. So they, they live in Germany mainly or in some other countries. Some of them live in Britain. And what do they do there? You know, how do they maintain their Russianness, or what what do they do to fit in? And it's very individual. And again, market forces play a great role there, as in exactly the same way as they played their role in Diaghilev's time. I was talking to Marina Frolova Walker of Cambridge University about her book Russian Music and Nationalism, which was published by Yale University Press in two thousand and eight and is still available in hardback. You can find out more about it on the Yale website. On the Yale site, you can also find out about Marina's most recent book. It's entitled Stalin's Music Prize, Soviet Culture and Politics. And, as she writes on her webpage, she regards it as her magnum opus. Do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed this podcast... Subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up on any interviews you've missed. There are all sorts of good things coming up in the weeks ahead, just as soon as I stop coughing. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.